0: Hey Dunker Punks, Dana Costell here, and I am really excited to share this episode with you. It's about a congregation I know who's opening up their church as sanctuary for an undocumented neighbor. Immigration is on everybody's minds these days because the way the United States is currently carrying out its policies is really, really troubling. So here's a question for you to get started while you listen to our theme song, what is a faithful christian attitude toward immigrants and refugees
1: what would jesus do what did jesus do i don't want to be rich don't want to be popular don't want to be selfish no i don't want to be a goat don't want to be ignorant don't want to be blindfolded i just want to be countercultural Be violent, don't wanna have a vendetta, don't wanna be vengeful. No, I don't wanna be a soldier, don't wanna be militaristic, don't wanna help that cycle. I just wanna be a countercultural pacifist. I don't wanna be don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no, I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving, organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, beautiful, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, an inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. I just want to be me.
0: All right, y'all. This conversation is with several folks from the Umstead Park United Church of Christ, which is just down the road from me in Raleigh, North Carolina. Last year, that was 2017, their congregation decided to open up their building and their lives as sanctuary for an undocumented neighbor with an active deportation order. It is a risky move of faith with a long and ancient history. You'll learn a little bit about sanctuary, which is a very old, even biblical concept. I have learned so much from these folks and from their work, and I hope that you will come away just as motivated as I am to be at work both in speaking up alongside our most vulnerable neighbors and in sharing real, physical, material resources. So thanks to all of you for being here and being willing to talk a little bit about uh, Sanctuary at Amistad Park, United Church of Christ. Would each
2: of you do a little introduction just so we know who's here and who, who's chatting? So I'm Bridget Flynn Spears. I am a member of the congregation. I'm actually now the Mm -hmm. (laughs) moderator-elect. We were all three members of the Sanctuary Task Force, and I do the training for the people who are here as sanctuary hosts, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit.
3: Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Sarah Sidney, and I'm here with Sadie, my five-month-old. And (laughs) um, I, like Bridget said, I was also on the Sanctuary Task Force. And I've been a member of Umstead Park United Church of Christ since about March of 2017.
4: And I'm Gary Sanders, and I'm the longtime member here among this group anyway, so I've (laughs) I've been a member about 11 or 12 years here. And as Bridget said, we were all on the Sanctuary Task Force, and then from there I've become the volunteer coordinator, so I'm the one who schedules everyone to be here for their host shifts Mm -hmm. 24 hours around the clock.
0: Could one of you explain what is sanctuary? What does it mean that you're a sanctuary congregation?
1: Ah.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Amy. you want to take it. (laughs) (laughs) So the the concept goes actually all the way back to the Old Testament, like the cities of refuge and people sort of fleeing when they were in trouble. Um, And then if you got to a place of refuge, then you could sort of have a a respite from getting in whatever kind of trouble you were in. Ah and then sort of a little bit more modern in medieval times you had a similar concept and then the concept shifts to sanctuary as it starts to be inside churches and so here in the united states there was an earlier movement in the 1980s where churches had um, undocumented people who were trying to get asylum in the united states and who had deportation orders stay in their churches for a brief amount of time and since The current administration has um, dramatically upped the um, immigration enforcement efforts. We've had sort of a resurgence here. So basically the concept is that as long as someone is inside the church walls, that the government won't come take them out. Mm -hmm. There's some exceptions to that under modern policy, but I think generally churches avoid taking people who might be exceptions. Mm -hmm. But once you're in sanctuary, then you have to stay put. because if you leave, then the people who come in are under active deportation orders and so would be taken immediately back to wherever they came from.
0: So what, what made the congregation passionate and decide to enter into this work as a church?
4: I, I think just in general, we've got a very socially active congregation and a lot of social activism causes that, that we've undertaken. There was some concern in terms of what we were getting into. Could anyone be arrested mm-hmm. for, for us providing sanctuary? Um, There's some concerns about what would it cost the church, which it's cost us really nothing. In fact, we've, I think, taken in more contributions than what we've actually spent just from people that have heard about us. There was a little bit of reservation, but I think most folks felt like this was a good response to the 2016 elections where we could take a stand in a broader sense but also helped an individual. So, so it's not just like we're out there marching somewhere, we're actually physically helping one person from being deported and from tearing his family apart.
0: Yeah, physically offering sanctuary to a brother yes. in need. How long was the process of decision making for the congregation before LSAO entered sanctuary?
4: June twentieth yeah. was the first mm-hmm. coordinating council meeting, which our coordinating council is our official board or governing body. And, and that
0: uh, was twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen.
4: So yeah. So, so, so June twentieth of last year, it was first discussed, and then the first dinner we had with Julian Paul from Congregational UCC in Greensboro was was on July 9th. and that was a group of about fifteen of us. I think went to went met him met him in Durham, and just picked their brains and, and asked them a lot of questions, and then we met several times after that as a task force and then and then on September twenty fourth, the three months basically from the time we first started discussing it was our congregational vote. And, and that vote was ninety four and a half percent of the congregation voted in favor of moving forward.
0: Ninety four and a half
4: percent.
0: That's
2: awesome. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was the, the exact uh,
0: percentage. Uh-huh. That, yeah. that rounds up to ninety five. <laughs> yeah exactly it does.
4: It does and and then and, and, and two weeks later we, we had some preparations to make here. We we used the space that was our our youth room and so it took us some time to, to do that and make some preparations and then we were matched with Eliseo think, I think Doug, our minister pretty much knew who Eliseo was very soon after we, we voted to uh, become a sanctuary congregation but we weren't aware of who he was we just knew there was a candidate because he was in, in private sanctuary at the time it means he was living with a couple in Durham and, and that and that, that's very much illegal and, and so we didn't want to out them or anything like that yeah.
0: so then Eliseo Jimenez has been living here after you guys went through the long process, when did he move in?
4: October ninth. Okay, yeah. I think
0: was okay. two thousand seventeen. Yeah. Okay, and right now while we're recording, it's the beginning of May in twenty eighteen. Yeah. Um, so that's been that's been a while. Be,
4: be yeah. seven, no, be seven. seven months. Seven months. Seven. Be seven months. Yeah. This, this week.
2: It was a shorter process getting ready to have someone in sanctuary than having him here will be. Yeah. So I mean, I think one of the challenges and that, w- that we had to kind of wrap our heads around is that when sanctuary uh works the way that it's kind of the hope is that the person will be able to get through the legal process there are multiple ways that a deportation order can be lifted or stayed or otherwise there's just a, a multitude of legal mechanisms that many of which are discretionary that sometimes work quickly and worked pretty quickly for the church in Greensboro, although they now have a second person in sanctuary. So they had relatively quick success with the woman that was living there when we first started talking to them. Um, And then once she was safely free to go home and stay here in the United States, then they found another person to live in the same space and they continued the process. So our work with Eliseo I think is not going to be as quick. And so, well, it clearly hasn't been as quick. He's been here longer than she was there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And really, there's no definite end in sight.
0: This is one of the things, I mean, just connecting with you guys, I have been fascinated and infuriated to learn about how the immigration system works I mean legally that someone can have an active deportation order even though their case has not been ruled upon that there are two su- separate systems has that have you guys learned things that you did not know in this whole process about systems <laughs> you can't see them listeners but they're all shaking their heads and sighing
3: <laughs> it's really eye-opening mm-hmm. What we put people through, Mm -hmm. what our justice system, I guess, if you can call it that, puts immigrants through. Mm -hmm. You know, just I can't, I don't know the specifics of various cases, but I know that in this case, he's had to establish that he's been here for I don't know how many years. So if you want someone to establish how long they've been here, you expect to have records of, I don't know, employment or housing um, or bank accounts. But if someone is not a legal Mm -hmm. citizen, how do they get those things? Mm -hmm. So we're asking people to provide legal documents that we never allowed them to have in the first place. So essentially, it's just an impossible system for someone to navigate. And I guess they just have to hope that they have the best possible legal team they can, which a lot of people don't have. And so it's just been really eye-opening to how difficult the process of actually being able to become a legal citizen truly is. And I think that's what a lot lot of people who make the argument that people should, oh, they should just come here legally, Mm -hmm. what you don't understand is it's often... Literally impossible to come here legally, and a lot of people who's who have been here for generations. When their their grandfather or great grandparents came here, there was no illegal or legal. People came and they were, you know. So it, it, the system is totally different today than it was, say, fifty or a hundred years ago, and that's what people don't un- seem to understand when they say, "Oh, they should just come here legally." Right.
2: Well, we let we forget too that the as soon as there was a legal process for immigration, there's a history of injustice and significant bias. I mean, we turned away Jews during World War II who literally died in concentration camps because yeah. we didn't let them in. Yeah. Then yeah. um, the same exact thing is happening and to, to people who have ah. um, relatives dying in Syria when and, and who we aren't letting come in, or in mm-hmm. Central or South America, or... mean a variety of other places and you know Mm -hmm. the news cycle is now 24 hours a day which it wasn't then Mm -hmm. um we have a lot more information but then we have information overload and so all of that feels sort of like so crushing if you think about it much that we just don't think about it at all yeah but the reality is i mean people are dying because Mm -hmm. we won't let them in and the reality is that when we deport people even to mexico there are gangs that pick people up like as soon as we drop people on the border and then hold them for ransom or involve them in the drug trade on pain of death or very i mean really bad things happen to people and it's very easy to find documentation of those stories mm-hmm. and then it's also hard to find people who have come back into the united states who are willing to provide testimony about it because it's yeah. so dangerous to them in case they get sent back again right
0: i think this this is one of the things i've learned from you guys i just didn't know anything about immigration systems and processes and what it means to have a deportation order and i'm grateful that you guys have done this in such a public and open way but that's also a choice to be active in this way so publicly so when lsao came and entered sanctuary you guys held a press conference um and you've been all over the news could you talk a little bit about why that's important to be public in this way about what you're doing and offering sanctuary
2: a little part of that is legal Mm -hmm. so not hiding it means Mm -hmm. um we are taking the position that we're not uh, what is the term for it i mean we're not harboring or concealing. i mean ice knows where he is because Mm -hmm. we had a press conference when we brought him in and so that's part of the risk for people and why you only have people on active deportation orders Mm -hmm. coming into sanctuary because in order for the church not to be harboring someone, we need to be open about it. And it's also part of the point from a, a long-term policy and advocacy perspective that you do it publicly so that we're not just helping LSAO, we're also hope, helping hopefully lots of people like LSAO who don't have a church to stay in but are un, in, here under very similar circumstances and whose children are also dependent on them to you know, provide not just Care and parenting, but also you know, food on the table and a roof over their head.
0: Yeah, so it's it's sort of shining a light and bringing all all that nastiness out of the darkness where it kind of thrives.
4: And, and, it, and it's a it's a great opportunity to have some publicity toward uh, about his case and, and 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 the immigration system in general. So so that when there is a press conference, it seems to draw the press when when someone new enters sanctuary, and then and then. They just establish a routine and you know they're kind of forgotten about unless yeah. something happens it's newsworthy and, and so it's a it's a great way to draw to draw publicity towards towards the case. Mm-hmm.
0: Well one of the one of the things that you guys have had to do is to have a twenty four seven volunteer presence <clears throat> on site. Can you talk about how that has worked? And I imagine that has been difficult to yeah. <laughs> keep
3: well, someone here. Gary has done that. Yeah. He, Gary has been our person who does that, and he's done an amazing job just recruiting and staying on top of it and making sure that we do have 24-7. So. It,
4: it has worked really, really well. So The first part of your question is, we, we have that because there is a zoning requirement in the city of Raleigh that, that if you have someone living in a religious facility, there needs to be someone here with them 24 hours a day, but the real reason that we have someone here is because it's not law it's only a policy that ice won't enter a church Mm -hmm. to take someone away Mm -hmm. so by having a volunteer here around the clock we know that if they were to show up there's at least someone here to witness it record it and the fear of bad publicity is all that keeps them from doing it so by having someone here they can record it and they can summon other folks so we can get a contingent of folks here quickly to respond to it but as far as how we've done it we of course, we have a number of volunteers within our own congregation, but we also have about 10 other faith communities that support us, your church being one. That, that's a big help. In fact, I, I document the hours, and about 20% of our volunteer hours are folks that are not members of our congregation. So I don't think we could do this without the support of other of other churches. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we were fortunate of the timing of those Sanctuary Matters workshops because that brought some publicity to us, and we got some folks who really volunteered to help there, Then as the Christmas holidays drew near, one of the women who's very active in the Jewish community stepped forward and said, we'd like to be able to help provide Mm -hmm. folks for you for for over the holidays. As it turned out, our church members staffed Christmas Day 24 hours. (laughs) But the Jewish community has really stepped up and responded, and we've got quite a few folks from various Jewish congregations in the area that are volunteers with us. Among some other groups, we have folks from the Catholic Church mm-hmm. so we, we, we've got a very ecumenical presence here with, with our volunteers and we use a sign-up genius and it, it just seems to work folks monitor it and um, I'll typically send out an email once a week Thursday or Friday because the weekends don't tend to fill up as quickly as the weekdays do, which kind of surprised me but that's, that's the way it's played out and I'll just highlight when we've got vacancies and, and, and folks pretty much respond and then if if that doesn't work I've got a group of about 15 people, most of us that were on the Sanctuary Task Force are on that, as well as some other folks that either live nearby or work from home and have said, I can be there on fairly short notice, so if you need someone in the afternoon, let me know the day before or the morning of, and, and, I, and I can be there. So I've used that about a half a dozen times since we've been doing it, just to say, hey, I've got an opening tomorrow that, that nobody's filled, can, can you fill it? And we've been fortunate that, so far, all those shifts have been have been filled by folks that's, that were were able to step up.
0: I have been curious about that. So that's like once a month, there's a, a quote, emergency, you call,
2: someone on kind, call. Kind
4: of something. Yeah, yeah. That, that's about what's worked out to be. And our, and our total volunteer pool is about 140 people right now. So, so
2: and People are still coming to training. So we trained, we did a bunch of training in the beginning, really just to help people be comfortable with the idea that they might have to interact with ICE, mm-hmm. even though the odds are pretty low, they're going to have mm-hmm. to do that. And so... You know, and, and sort of talking about how do we prepare people, we thought about, you know, what do people need to know? And cause most of it is literally just hanging out on the couch <laughs> and talking to LSAO if he's here or people read books, people quilt, people watch videos here in the library. I mean, it's, it really has been a lot of hanging out it's like lifeguarding like mm-hmm. some i lifeguarded for 6 years i made one save <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, and we may very well i mean there are people who lifeguard their whole careers with no saves now if you if you lifeguard the water park you'll have a lot more saves so if you were doing you know trying to have people help people in immigration that weren't in a church which is a pretty mm-hmm. low risk proposition then you probably would have more interaction with ice and people who go to the courthouse or um, do protests that are much more in the face of the administration, the bureaucracy, have more interaction, Mm -hmm. but also aren't doing anything that's sort of questionably legal in those circumstances.
0: And I am an official volunteer, so I went through the training, and one of the things I just really appreciated was, like it feels pastoral and theological to me, like Mm -hmm. you do not do much when you're here, like you're not super active, but it's very important that someone is here. And if something should happen, that you act as a witness. I mean, Bridget, in the training, you said your job is not to stop anything from happening. Right. Your job is to be here to see what's going on and maybe use some de escalation techniques. Right. And that was really powerful for me to think about, not just here in Sanctuary, but just in the world. Like, if these systems are this awful, how can I witness to them? I might not be able to insert myself in the gears that are like turning on but how can I say no this is wrong and this is happening and it is not the only way that we could do this so that was really powerful and it makes me wonder like how does your faith inform this sanctuary effort like why is it important that churches are doing this
4: I think we feel like theologically and morally and ethically you know, we're, we're called to welcome the stranger you know the the, the scripture that I've most think about is the, you know, story of the sheep and the goats in Matthew, Mm -hmm. and and Jesus says, whatever you've done unto, well, in the King James Version, he says, at least to these are my brethren, so, Mm -hmm. you know, for your podcast,
0: (laughs) (laughs) we're right in there.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I I think that informs it. but also, you know, a a couple of Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus say, you know, when a foreigner resides among you, do not mistreat them. Mm Mm-hmm foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt." Mm -hmm. And that ends with, I am the Lord your God, which a lot of those passages in Leviticus do, which to me that's just like a banging of the gavel or or an exclamation point that says, pay attention to what what, what this just said. Yeah, Yeah,
0: that's great. I love that Leviticus passage because people don't think about Leviticus when they think about immigration law or
2: sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Yeah well and to me it's a uh, it's not just the verses which I find also very impactful, but there are also i mean there are other verses that we that particularly ones in Leviticus that we don't take quite so um, currently informing our you know I eat a lot of shrimp so um and I'm currently wearing some mixed clothing that is more than one kind of fabric but the the theme of um, helping people who are oppressed and giving. Voice to people who don't have a voice in the system, and of speaking truth to power, and of—I mean, no one in the Bible would have used the term sort of leveraging their privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a very privileged church. We are predominantly white, predominantly upper middle class, or at least middle class, and live in a you know relatively easy to live in city that you know most people have two cars, most people in their home. I mean, it you know. Sarah and I have more than two kids, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gary's got two kids, you know, well, he has a mixed family, I have a mixed family. So, you know, there's kind of lots of things going on there, but we are in in some ways taking our position that is, that we didn't earn, that's relatively powerful Mm -hmm. and using it to try to benefit people who are very deserving of the same things that we have that we didn't earn. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And it's, you know, when I think about it, if you want to connect it to faith and specifically Christian faith, I mean, who was, you know, the person in the Bible who most spoke truth to power Mm -hmm. and spoke up against powerful forces of oppression? It was Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fully in line with the teachings of Jesus and how he lived his life and lived out, you know, what he believed fully in line to speak out against powerful forces that are being used to to oppress people in our community and i think that's you can see countless examples of that going on today and immigration is just one of them um but you know united church of christ also has been a force for trying to speak up for people who are being oppressed um not just in on issues of immigration, but on issues of marriage equality, anti-racism actions, so it just seemed natural to to take on this issue. Yeah,
0: and I love the way that you guys are doing it, both by speaking up and out and against and also leveraging resources. That And it's really striking to me that your building is a resource, and that's how you guys have chosen to use it. I mean, this is a shelter where someone can live, and you've made it that and then offered it. So it's really, it's powerful to put those two together, to speak up and also offer tangible, very material resources. I'm curious if being involved in the sanctuary effort has had an impact on your personal faith in any way.
4: I think for me, it's it's, it's given me a way to practice my faith and, and, and live it out. After the election, I literally felt like I'd been punched in the gut and I would not sit at home in the evenings and scroll through facebook Mm -hmm. and read news stories on my on my phone and gripe about things and my my wife would reach a point where she was tired of hearing me complain and she'd say what are you going to do about it so sanctuary has been a way for me to do something about it Mm -hmm. and actually get involved and and live out my faith and 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 be able to, to, to in a very practical way do something to assist someone who who needs help which is which is really, I think, what we're called to do. I mean, if, that, if you, we look at the life of Jesus, he's either helping people or advocating for people. Mm-hmm. So sanctuary is a way to do to do both. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's kind of where it is for me. Mm-hmm.
2: I think for me, too, it was a way to work as a community, like not just individually, but to kind of pull together and do something that um, really, I mean, nobody here could have done this by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it required working through disagreements and finding consensus and it really was practicing sort of the opposite and trying to work through okay can't should we do this can we do this then how will we do this the exact kind of not quite bureaucracy but the discussions and really finding ways to reach agreement with people that is completely lacking in mm-hmm. most areas of government mm-hmm. and so I mean this is a ti- it's a tiny little community really it's like you know a few hundred people that but it's governed by committees that you know report up into other committees mm-hmm. and then have you know a, a council over it and that that's not unlike how american government works and so to me there was part of it that felt like okay the, at least we know that there's still some like some power in s- small pieces of democracy mm-hmm. that. You know, we can we can pull together and figure out how to work as a community in ways that benefit everybody and that lift people up mm-hmm. instead of boxing people out. Mm-hmm. While the kind of loudest voices on the news and otherwise were really working hard to, to push people apart and further polarize people and then to box people out of you know, if you aren't upper middle class and white then go back where you came from Mm -hmm. even if you're Native American and we're here long before the current administration's ancestors ever set foot in the country
0: Mm -hmm. that gets a little bit at at my next question which is do you think that the sanctuary effort has had an impact on the congregation as a whole
4: I I think so I I think it's given folks something to rally around Mm -hmm. I'd be hard pressed to figure out who the five people were who voted against this Mm -hmm. when we we first brought it to the congregation because I I don't think that we've had anybody leave the congregation over it, and I think it's given folks a chance to step up and do something. Whether it's spend a few hours here as a host, or spend an overnight mm-hmm. shift, or just bring a meal, or do laundry for So mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's ways that folks can help in, in, in all kinds of areas, and you know, and I think we we've, we've probably all been part of a church where the bureaucracy gets caught up in looking out for what goes on within the four walls of the church and loses sight of what needs to happen outside and power struggles and, and all that kind of stuff and I think one of the things as, as Bridget alluded to was you know we had to work through some issues there were some people who had reservations and we you know we had to figure out how to how to talk to that and we really did I mean we, we dealt with it head on at the presentation we did before we took the vote we, we kind of laid out the issues and said here they are Here's what we know about them. Here's why we think this is the right thing to do and, and gave folks a chance to ask questions and, and engage, which is really what I wish that there was more of in, in political discourse in this country. You know, I, I, I think back to a sermon I heard years ago from Fred Craddock, who was a noted Disciples of Christ preacher, and he said something to the effect of, so you're doing church work but are you doing the work of the church? Mm. And so often church work means committee meetings and figuring out budgets and things that don't have anything to do with folks on the outside. Not that church budgets are a bad thing because right. we need to we need to pay folks, we need to pay for the building, but a lot of churches can lose sight of what the real mission is supposed to be. And I, I think this gave us something to focus on where we're, we're focused outside the four walls of this church and, mm. and especially on the life of one, one individual and his family and how we can keep them together and do something positive in the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's folks from my congregation have also been grateful that you have focused outside and invited other people to be a part of it too. One woman just said to me yesterday she was really grateful for the, what she called the cross-pollination of denominations. Mm-hmm. She, I think she got a Sunday school class idea the last time she was here and she was very excited to be connected with the UCC. But I really I love that 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 this is a real way to focus outside the walls and to be active
4: and we've done a couple different fellowship events you know, potluck dinners in the evening one one kind of early early on after we started and then one just a, just a couple weeks ago and then we had an event where where, where someone who's you know running for office locally wanted mm-hmm. to focus attention on, on LSAOs case and brought folks from the outside in and it's really interesting to get to get folks together who wouldn't normally be together mm-hmm. and, and and you know basically what the Common denominator is is sanctuary as a cause, and, and specifically it as a person.
2: Yeah, I think too it's, it's required us as a community not just to pull together ourselves, but we couldn't have done this without congregations like your congregation or the couple of Jewish communities that have plugged in with us. Like we we need those extra hands and people to do some of the just, yeah, it's not just filling in the gaps, it's filling in a large part of mm-hmm. um, a burden that I don't think this church could have borne alone, mm-hmm. um, and, and and also I think it's good for Eliseo to have contact with people, not just who are in this particular community with its particular views, um, he gets to have conversations then with people who are living, you know, lots of different kinds of lives um, out in the community, and
4: some variety and not just uh, the people that come to church here one of the volunteers from another congregation is active in Audubon Society and mm-hmm. she's a big birder Well, she had a birdhouse that needed repair so she brought it here and asked Eliseo oh, could he repair it for her? well that led to this whole cottage industry of making bird houses that we now call bird sanctuaries thanks to the suggestion of one of our one of our members <laughs> and that's provided him Number one, an outlet for his time during the day when, when he's otherwise could be bored. And secondly, a way to generate some, some income for his family mm-hmm. because he, he was the primary breadwinner and you know, they're struggling a little bit financially with him not able to work. So by being able to sell these bird sanctuaries and generate some income, it's been helpful.
2: So if you want a bird sanctuary, I'm sure that Dana can put you in touch with someone yes, who can, we can connect do that. you. And Maybe we'll some share food.
0: some photos yes. when, it, when this That's episode true. posts. They're oh, beautiful.
2: They are beautiful. And he and people have made really generous donations and then it really just, the birdhouse just becomes a token mm. of a reminder of that LSA is here and still in sanctuary and a yeah. beautiful little piece of art hanging in your backyard welcoming in some wildlife.
0: So the people who are listening to this podcast think of themselves as Dunker punks and I've shared with you guys that Dunker used to be an insult because we baptize baptized people full immersion Um, but we're sort of reclaiming that and combining it Dunker punks. So do
2: you feel like your work in Sanctuary is punk work? Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) It is countercultural. It is Messy. Nobody's, the thing that I think about when I think about punk, particularly music, is the, it was very unfinished, literally recorded sometimes on like people hitting the two buttons at the same time on a cassette player in the yeah. garage. Yeah. Um, kind of and, like this recording. Right. <laughs> Way less fancy than this recording and no one was editing it. And it, yeah. it was, and it was on the edge. It prides itself on being on the edge. And so I think that concept of rebelling against um, but also for something is really something that I think this whole concept really resonates with. And it it certainly appeals to sort of my inner, I don't know that I would call qual- I I don't even like punk music, but yeah. I do like the idea of sort of pushing against where things have gotten too comfortable and mm-hmm. things have gotten too focused on what's appropriate and waiting for change to happen for people in government or through kind of the standard system, often that doesn't work unless mm-hmm. you have some people who are out on the edge really pushing the envelope in mm-hmm. some ways. And so I'm delighted to be part of pushing this particular envelope because the we need so much more immigration reform than mm-hmm. fixing LSAO's one case will accomplish. And even if we get everything we want with LSAO, it will leave still hundreds of thousands of people without the kind of relief that they need. And Congress just basically refuses to act on even the most basic stuff that everybody's in favor of, like DACA, Mm -hmm. I mean, because DACA is so popular that then they wanna load everything else onto it so that, because people don't wanna vote against it, Mm -hmm. and then people have to vote against it because it's been loaded down with a bunch of complete junk that nobody will vote for. I mean, it's a really broken system, Mm -hmm. and we're just fixing a tiny part of it if we're successful here. Mm And if we're not successful here, then we'll still be drawing a lot of attention to a part of it, a little piece of the system that for Eliseo and Gabriela, um, his wife, and their two two kids who are American citizens, um, who've never lived in Mexico, and who have as much right to all of the appropriate citizenship rights that all of the rest of us have. And, you know, I frankly think Eliseo and Gabriela should have those rights too we need to figure out a way to let people in legally Mm -hmm. or at least figure out how to let them provide for their kids
4: one of the questions was raised during our discernment process was and i think it was raised by someone who felt like this was going to be on the edge and maybe controversial and said well what if what if people leave the church if we Mm -hmm. do this and i thought one of the very interesting things was our, our minister doug long countered with what if we don't do this? How many people would leave the church then? Hmm. And I really think that we probably would have lost more people. I, I know we would have lost more people by not doing it, including because we did, possibly Doug. Yeah, because, <laughs> because I don't. I don't think we've. I don't think we've lost anybody for having done it. And I do think we would have lost lost some folks because they would have said, "Well, this church talks a good game, but they, you know, when it comes time to comes time to walk the walk, they're yeah. not." So yeah. I, I think it's a chance to. To walk the walk of what we're what we're talking about
0: well that's i mean the statistic about north carolina has the most active sanctuary congregations of any other state but that number is six yes. right can you yes. share what you said about those numbers
4: yeah so so there's a statistic that's tossed around a lot that says there are a thousand congregations that, that are sanctuary congregations across the country well doesn't mean there's a thousand congregations that have someone in sanctuary that means there are a thousand congregations like yours that are that are that have either taken a vote to say they they will support sanctuary or or they are supporting another congregation like ours so while we have we're we're one congregation with someone in sanctuary there's about 10 or 11 other faith communities that that are supporting us so they they would they would fall into that category of a thousand but when you get down to the to the brass tax, there are 40 individuals in sanctuary nationwide right now and 6 of those are here in North Carolina and I've got mixed emotions about that I'm, I'm proud of the fact that here in North Carolina we're, we're, we're taking the lead, but at the same time I'm, I'm ashamed and embarrassed that we even need to be having the conversation to consider it offering sanctuary mm-hmm. because of the political climate in this country and because as Bridget alluded to, that we can't get any kind of legislation passed to deal with the problem that is right there and everybody knows it and needs to be dealt with
0: I keep coming back to the, um, Bridget, you said punk is unfinished. Mm -hmm. And so that it really, you all don't know how long you'll be offering sanctuary because LSAO's case is not, I mean, there's just no way to predict how long that will take. Um, And so you, your congregation has made the commitment up front that as long as it takes, that's how long it takes. How are you all feeling about that seven months in?
4: That's interesting because the May newsletter that went out, you know, Doug does a, a column in the newsletter, mm-hmm. and this month it was entitled The Long Haul, mm-hmm. and he spoke specifically to Eliseo's legal case and the, the fact that there's probably a couple of hurdles in immigration court that need to be jumped through where we don't expect a positive outcome mm-hmm. before it actually gets into the court system and can be heard in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals where his attorney feels like she's got a good case. Mm-hmm. So. I think the, the intention there was for Doug to catch people up that aren't, that aren't as intimately involved as Bridget and I are with, with what's going on, to know where we are, but also just to let folks know that this really is, we're going to be doing this for a while. You know, one of the, one of the questions that was asked when we were going through our, our process before, before the vote was, how long do we think we'll, we'll have him here? And, and our response was, we're prepared to do this until the administration changes, mm-hmm. because we really, we really don't know that it's going to get any better.
2: Well, and I think it's important for us to remember and and keep recentering on as as hard as it is on Gary, who's, you know, minding the sign up genius. And, you know, I do a training usually once a month and takes an hour and occasionally come up here and do host duties. Gary does a lot more host duties than I do. But we're not here 24-7 trying to, you know, fight for the right to stay with our kids Mm -hmm. and in jeopardy of being deported. So LSA is here all the time, away from his wife, away from his kids, except when they're here to visit on the weekend because they don't live in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, the long haul for him is a lot harder and a lot more just painful and, I mean, I can't imagine trying, like, hanging out in what used to be some church's youth room mm-hmm. and showering in, um, and we already had a shower, but it's in like the, like, basically locker room space Mm -hmm. that the building just happens to have and I mean sharing a big giant kitchen with a whole church like that's none of that is something any of us would want to sign up for and he's doing it because he's committed to staying with his kids Mm -hmm. and I think about my kids and what I would do to not be separated from them and I would absolutely do what he's doing but it's costing him far more than it's costing us Mm -hmm. and it's costing the parents who are being taken away from their kids even more than it's costing him Mm -hmm. I saw this just heartbreaking picture of a kid in ICE custody. Uh, I think it was a Central American kid who had been separated from his parents. And fr- the picture was particularly stark because he was fully caged in with like chain link fence, mm-hmm. but like because that's part of how they're separating people and processing, because none of these are dangerous criminals. Mm-hmm. So you can actually separate them and contain them with chain link, which wouldn't work if they were actual dangerous criminals but it was just this maybe 10 year old kid standing totally by himself staring at this screen it must have been a tv or i don't know with an armed guard on the other side of the chain link fence and he'd been separated from his family as soon as he crossed the border mm-hmm. and that i mean that's just wrong mm-hmm. i mean it's just wrong mm-hmm. and we shouldn't be doing that mm-hmm. and we shouldn't be separating elsao from his kids mm-hmm. i think however long it takes and as long as he can stand it we're going to stand with and for him mm-hmm. And if he can't stand it anymore and somebody else wants to come stay in his space, I think I certainly would advocate for taking somebody else until times change and people don't need sanctuary anymore. Mm -hmm. I also think in our congregation that one of the biggest things that's changed is if we took that vote again, I think that 5% would be gone. Mm -hmm. I don't think you'd have anybody that voted against it Mm -hmm. now that we've been doing it for a while. Even now that we know that it could take I mean, I think in the beginning, we all thought, oh, this will probably be over like it was in Greensboro in a few months. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly not going to be the case. Mm -hmm. And I think people would still vote for it, despite the fact that that was one of the things that hung us up in the beginning a little bit. What else is important for people to know? You can do this. This is not that hard. And if your church doesn't have a kitchen and doesn't have a bathroom, you can do it with a microwave and a hot plate and you can put in a shower. Mm -hmm. Like you have an existing bathroom. Knock out one of your stalls and put in a shower. This is not that hard. And not all not every city requires twenty four seven coverage. I think it's the wise thing to do, but if you've got, you know, a congregation that can provide part of that, you can partner with other congregations to do more. And so if your church can't do it by themselves and do like Um, like your church has done Dana, and find a church that's doing it and help. And then if you reach critical mass of enough volunteers, then maybe you find, you know, oh, we'll peel off five churches worth of volunteers and go build something on the back of your building or build something on the back of somebody else's building. And I think that if more churches would do what we're doing and we had more than 40 people in sanctuary, that it would be making a bigger impact. Mm -hmm. And not just on the individuals, but on the system in general.
3: For me, Sanctuary is really important in the sense that it's one of the only ways we can kind of tell the true story of undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants in this country because for so long, these people are living in the shadows and their stories are not coming out. What's what's coming out is these myths mm-hmm. and um, these stereotypes mm-hmm. that have been allowed to be propagated without a counter to that. And this really is the truthful counter to that. So I think people like Eliseo, when we can get their stories out in the open, and I think one of the only ways to do that is through sanctuary in our current legal and political climate, it's really vital to the immigration debate because it is actually shedding a truth upon who these people are, the kind of people that they are and why we want them here Mm -hmm. because they are our friends and our neighbors and through Sanctuary we've been able to lift up voices like Mm Eliseo's and his families and show show a a counter to the stereotypes Mm -hmm. that are promoted and they're allowed to be promoted because essentially undocumented immigrants can't make their stories public. And so that, for me, is a really important role that sanctuary plays in our current climate. That strikes me as another way of leveraging privilege, like Mm
0: -hmm. that this congregation doesn't fear arrest or deportation if, if you all are public. Um, and so Sanctuary is a physical place where LSAO is and others have taken refuge. But Sanctuary also, it seems like, makes a safe refuge for the truth to be told. I mean, you guys are clearing out some space and shining light and offering a safe space for truth, I think, too.
2: Makes Sadie very sad. Yes. Yeah. Well, a lot of this conversation makes me very sad. Yeah.
0: I'm super grateful to all of you for being willing to share um, and for the ways you've invited others into that Um, the work of Sanctuary and clear space for all of us to hear LSAO's story and the truth of um, what's happening with immigration in the U.S. right now. So thank you. Thanks to Sadie too. I love that message from Bridget. You can do this. The Sanctuary movement in the United States includes over a thousand congregations, but that number includes congregations like mine who aren't offering sanctuary themselves, but partnering with another church, or who have made a statement that they are in support of sanctuary. But there are actually fewer than 40 people in sanctuary, in religious sanctuary, in the United States. And my state, North Carolina, is home to four of those folks, the most of any other state. And I don't know about you, but 40 people who are finding sanctuary in churches sounds to me like a very small number, especially when I've recently learned that there are over 11,000 children in United States detention centers because they've crossed a border. These days, listening to the news, especially the national news like that, is deeply disturbing. I have been praying and calling my representatives and trying really hard to listen for what God is calling me and my church to do In order to be places of refuge and people of justice and followers of jesus even as our official federal policies are arresting separating prosecuting imprisoning and killing people for crossing our border the folks at umstead park are doing something about it and their message is that we can do it too Gary quoted leviticus 19 in our conversation when immigrants live in your land with you you must not cheat them Any immigrant who lives with you must be treated as if they were one of your citizens. You must love them as yourself because you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Love the immigrant as yourself. You can do this. Thanks be to God for the people of Umstead Park, UCC. For courageous neighbors like Eliseo who are willing to go public with their stories even at great risk. And for the Holy Spirit who moves us not just to word but also to action. My prayer is that each of us, and all of us together, might listen to the commands of Scripture, the witness of Jesus, and the example of faithful sisters and brothers to love the immigrant as ourselves. Dunkerpunks podcast is produced by a movement of people who are committed to following in the peaceful, simple, communal, and radical way of Jesus. If you want to get more involved with the podcast, there is a whole host of ways you can do that. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can share one of our episodes on social media. You can recommend the podcast to a friend. And we're also hiring a paid intern in the next couple of weeks. So apply now at arlingtoncob.org slash DPP. And if you are going to be at the Church of the Brethren National Youth Conference in Colorado later this month, we're looking for some regular listeners to join us on a workshop panel. If you're up for that, you can email dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Peace be with you, Dunker Punks. Until next time.